Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, where not only do I get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated, I have people from all walks of life. And this woman right here, a phenomenal woman, a doctor no less, the second doctor that I've had on this podcast. She holds a PhD in history along with the MA in Afro-American Studies from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, go Badgers, and a dual degree from University of Texas, Austin, Hook'em Horns, BS in Radio, TV, and Film, and a BA in History. Currently, she is the Associate Professor of History at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, Bear Down, and she is the weekly host of a radio show on KXCI entitled Soul Stories, which explains the branches and roots of R&B music and author of the book, I believe it's called Houston Bound. Is that correct? Houston That's Bound, correct. Culture and Color in a Jim Crow City. So ladies and gentlemen, please give a round of applause and a big welcome to Beyond the Album Cover to Dr. Tawana Steptoe. Dr. Steptoe, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It is a pleasure. And, you know, with me being a Southern guy myself from North Carolina, it is a treat because we got the Texas Carolina thing going. But we're going to debate later about who has the best barbecue. <laughs> got to have that brisket and hot sausage. now. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about brisket until I moved out to New Mexico about seven years ago, because, you know, in North Carolina is all about that pool pork. All about it. I do, I do love some Carolina pulled pork. Yes, yes, ma'am. And depending on where you go in the state, you got to get that vinegar-based sauce, which you can find on the eastern side of the state. And on the western side, it's more that tomato-based. And if you go further south to South Carolina, shout out to everybody in the Palmetto State, you got that gold sauce. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love I love visiting the Carolinas. I love North Carolina because I have a lot of friends who are from out there. And one of my graduate advisors wrote about the history of North Carolina and civil rights there. So even though I haven't spent a lot of time out there, I feel like I know the history of the state so well and its very important role in African-American history and civil rights. Right, definitely that look at the movie The Best of Enemies with Taraji P. Henson talking about uh, Miss Anne out in Durham. Shout out to all my folks in the Bull City. And then a book was just released about Soul City, which for me kind of holds a little bit special meaning because I grew up 50 minutes away from Soul City, which is in Warren County, North Carolina. And I would pass by the marker going on Highway 158 when I would get on Interstate 85 to go to school in Greensboro. So North Carolina is definitely more than just Pepsi, Michael Jordan, NASCAR, Texas Pete. Oh, yes. Very, very rich Black history out there. And a part of the Chitlin Circuit. And if you know about the Chitlin Circuit, let's jump right into it. Tell people a little bit about the Chitlin Circuit and then we're going to go into your journey in academia. All right. Well, you know, like so many aspects of life in the United States, popular culture, music, entertainment, these things were also segregated, you know. And so a lot of times Black artists, when they would play, they would often play for white audiences, but on different nights, you know, sometimes there would be like you play on a Friday night for white people, Saturday night for Black people. But in addition to that, you know, uh, Black Americans all also had their own networks 
of entertainment spots. We're talking about bars and nightclubs that hosted black talent. And so for a lot of black entertainers, you know, they would go and play at, in some cases, black owned venues where they played for their own people in these in black spaces. You know, and the Chitlin circuit became just a kind of colloquial name for that kind of informal network of bars and nightclubs that paid black artists to entertain local populations. And it's on the Chitlin circuit really where a lot of different styles and innovations happened, you know, because as people were on tour, as they traveled, especially like black entertainers who might be from North Carolina end up in East Texas performing. And, you know, that's when you sharpen your knives because you meet entertainers from other parts of the country. You learn new styles and developments. You learn what audiences in one part of the country might like. And then you take that back with you. So one of the things I'm looking at right now, I'm writing about rhythm and blues history and especially looking at the intersections of race, gender and sexuality and the development of the history of rhythm and blues music. That's really important because a lot of styles and innovations in R&B developed starting like in the late 1940s on the Chitlin circuit where people like Little Richard, Big Mama Thornton got their start on these traveling road on these traveling kind of theater troops that had comedy and music, female impersonation. Little Richard was a female impersonator early on in his career. And so they would go from town to town, city to city, mostly in the South, performing for Black audiences. And that's where Little Richard wrote Tutti Frutti while he was on the road going around like this. So the Chitlin Circuit has been a really important place where Black innovation happened on the road. Mm -hmm. And depending on where you went down south, you were asked to come back multiple times because I'm good friends with Mark Gay from Shy, and he's from Miami. He was telling me how a lot of the older Black people that lived in Miami during that time, they had to have a pass to show folks that, hey, I can still be out on the beach because I'm working out on Ocean Drive or whatever, because when it became sundown, Black folks weren't allowed on the beach by a certain time. And then we're seeing with, thanks to Lovecraft Country and Watchmen, a lot more people are starting to get educated about the race riots in Tulsa and various issues of tra tragedies within the African-American communities that was only spoken about in hushed tones, but now because of the internet, everybody knows. Right. And I think that it's a, a lot of movies and TV shows, like you pointed out, are highlighting those aspects of history. And of course, right, like when musicians, like musicians are traveling on the road, encountering those segregation laws, encountering those sundown towns made this really very dangerous. I was just watching the Mahalia Jackson movie uh, the other day, uh, last week, and that was one of the things in that movie too, where she talked about leaving Chicago and going back down South when she was on tour and the, the kind of um, police scrutiny, the potential for violence was always there. So it, it made traveling as a musician a really dangerous job for black musicians in the Jim Crow era. Mm -hmm. So can we talk about your journey 
into academia and where it all started for you growing up in H-Town, AKA Houston, Texas? Sure. So, you know, growing up in Houston, I, I grew up in a city that had so many rich musical traditions. But, you know, I think for a lot of us growing up, we take these things for granted. You know, we don't we don't realize that we might be in the middle of something historic while it's happening. You know, you're just you're living life with your family and your friends. And then looking back at it, I see how music was always such a part of what was going on in my childhood. Uh, so my family was always very interested in music and music was always around us, even though nobody played music professionally as a musician. It was always around. So like my grandparents grew up in Fifth Ward. Uh, they, they met as teenagers in Fifth Ward and Fifth Ward has such a rich musical history. Uh, my family lived in the same neighborhood as Peacock Records, which was one of one of the first black owned record companies by opened by Don Roby in the late 1940s. And so my grandparents used to be at the Bronze Peacock, which Don Ruby also owned and where people who were signed to Peacock Records would go and perform at. And Don Ruby also later purchased Duke Records. And so Duke and Peacock artists like Bobby Blue Bland were always, you know, in that community where they were. And so I kind of grew up hearing these kind of stories about Peacock you know, from them. And then when I was young, I had a family member who worked at the radio station KTSU, which was the student station for Texas Southern University and HBCU that's in Third Ward in Houston. And my family member produced a radio show called Kids Jam. And Kids Jam was the very first radio station to play hip hop in the city of Houston. You know, so things like that made music always part of my family life, part of the backdrop to what we were doing. But like I said, when I was growing up, I didn't think anything about the fact that, you know, my family member Pam Collins was running Kids Jam. I know I listened to it on Saturday mornings because it was something a family member was part of. And it was only when I got older that I realized like, wow, someone in my family helped introduce hip hop on the radio to the city of Houston and how important that actually is. So I, I grew up in this world where rhythm and blues, hip hop were very important. And then also because Houston is such a diverse city, there were all these other elements around, like my community on the east side of Houston where I grew up also had a very large and growing Latinx population. Uh, a lot of people of Central American descent, a lot of Colombians, you know, so I also was very exposed to the sounds of music that came from Latin America. And then as something I talk about in my book, there's a huge Creole population in Houston as well. So the sounds of Zotico were always around. And it was only later when I decided to write about the history of Houston that I realized that the word Zotico and Zotico as a genre actually came out of Fifth Ward in Houston by Creoles who had moved from Louisiana to Houston, who had migrated to another state and who brought their musical traditions and it develops into Zotico in Houston. You know, so again, these kind of rich musical traditions that you grow up around that you don't always realize are historic. So going to college and deciding to study Black cultural history is when I started to make meaning out of all these sounds and stories that I grew up with in Houston. 
Wow. And it's funny that you mentioned Kids Jams with Sir Lester Pace. I was listening to a couple of those air checks on YouTube. Great stuff. For those of you that don't know, Texas Southern, home of Football Hall of Famer Michael Strahan, um, Scarface had mentioned about Kids Jams in his book. And can we talk about real quickly the impact of Rap-A-Lot? Oh, my goodness. There's... I can't even stress how important rap a lot was growing up in Houston that, you know, at first, when we first got exposed to rap music through things like Kids Jam, it was something that came from somewhere else and came to us, especially from, of course, New York first, LA a little later, you know, that so there was a lot of things that came from the East and West Coast. And so for me, we only had a few songs that were coming out of Houston itself. Like in the 80s, we had a song called McGregor Park that was about a local park that a lot of young Black people went to in Houston. So every once in a while, we would get a, a song with some local flavor. But Rap-A-Lot is what really made there a strong hip-hop presence where people were kind of cultivating our own local sound out of it, you know? And so I think, I remember the first Ghetto Boys song I ever heard was a song called Gangster of Love. And it came out when I was in middle school and everybody was obsessed with it because it was us. It, they sounded like us, you know? And so I think that that's one of the, one of the great things that I love about studying the intersections of race and ethnicity and music is that musical production is so local. And it, it reminds us of what local people sound like and what's important to particular communities. You know, and with rap a lot, talking about Houston things and naming Houston streets in songs, you know, it, it felt like people from other parts of the world got to learn about us and learn about our slang and our neighborhoods, you know, and so. You know, even something like with the Ghetto Boys, we knew what communities they came out of and everything. We knew people, oh, so-and-so knows Scarface or somebody grew up with Willie D or something. You know, I think that having those kind of local expressions and from people who come from communities that you know were really important. And so Rap-A-Lot gave Houston that early on in the game. And, you know, I think, I think for a lot of people too, like uh, my husband is from Atlanta. And so for him, Rap-A-Lot is how he even learned about Houston. Same here. For in me. the first place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I was about six when my mom's playing Tricks on Me came out, R.I.P. Bushwick Bill, and how it was really the first exposure for me rap-wise from Texas, because you got to think about it, at this time, rap music was very regionalized, where you had Rap-A-Lot out of Houston, you had Luke Records, everything Uncle Luke was doing out of Miami, you had everything that was coming out of Atlanta, New York, of course, everything out on the West Coast, Southern California with NWA, and then Northern California, the Bay Area with E-40 and Too Short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think Mind Playing Tricks was, before that, a lot of the Ghetto Boys songs were things that remained local in Houston, you know, and then Mind Playing Tricks was all of a sudden, we started seeing the Ghetto Boys 
on TV, on video shows and stuff like that. And so that was really what I think, you know, like you saying, hearing that when you were young in North Carolina, that that song really is what let people know that the Houston hip hop scene was was here and that we had a sound, you know, that was that was coming out of it. That was that sounded very Southern, but also very Texan and Houston specifically. Right. And also out of that, we had a couple of years later, the group H-Town come out, knocking the boots, pop hit and everything like that, R.I.P. Dino, and then Chopped and Screwed, DJ Screw, mm -hmm. Big Mo, everything that came out of there. So can we talk about the impact of Chopped and Screwed and how it is still being reverberated to this day in the music industry? It's been a real thrill to watch something that was created by young people in Houston go global. You know, and I do a lecture in one of my classes. I teach a class here at U of A called Music and Ethnic America. And I decided to do a lecture about chopped and screw music. And at the end, I put together a kind of compilation of modern songs that all that have an element of chopped and screwed in it. And it was from people from all over the world who use this as a kind of sonic device in their songs now. Even Ariana Grande had a song that ended with the, with the screw moment at the end of it, you know? And so I played it for my students, all undergrads here in Arizona, and they said, oh, we didn't know that had a name. We just know that there's something that a lot of modern music does where it slows all the way down and, and gets slow, but we didn't know that there was a history to this sound, you know? And on the one hand, I was really excited that this was a sound they recognized, but disappointed that they didn't know the history of DJ Screw and that this was the innovation of people like him in Houston who developed this technique and popularized it locally. Then it spread regionally, right? Other parts of the South got it next. And then it kind of spread nationally and then internationally, you know, but that there's a root to this. And we can, you know, trace a lot of this back to some DJ innovations from Houston. So it, it's, it's both exciting to watch something that started so local become kind of a signature for modern music now. But at the same time, this kind of disappointment that more people don't know about DJ Screw and his history. I do know that there's there's a book that's coming out on him next year from University of Texas Press. And so I'm really hoping that that also educates more people about him, his life, and, you know, this sound he innovated as a young person in Houston that went on to change modern music. Yeah, and I think it was a record called Three in the Morning. I can't recall who the mm -hmm. artist was, how it was really one of the first chopped and screwed records to get regular airplay on the box out in Houston. Yeah, 97.9, The Box. You know, I think that The, the Box played such uh, an important role in taking Screw from something that was kind of with uh, a, a kind of cultural form that a lot of young people were sharing. So one thing that I remember my first interaction with Chopped and Screw music came from what we used to just call screw tapes starting when I was in high school. And the first time I ever heard any type of music that had been screwed was I was in high school 
walking back home and somebody in my neighborhood had put a speaker in the window and they were playing music. And I was, my first thought was, is something wrong with their record player? That song is dragging. It ain't supposed to sound like that. And so then later I realized that they were playing something that people were calling uh, screw music. And so back then what people would do is they would actually have to drive over to the South side and buy a tape from DJ Screw. And he would take requests, right? Like if you had a song that you really wanted to hear screwed, he would put together a tape for you. And so that's how I learned it through what we call screw tapes. And there was kind of an underground economy of screw tapes at my high school. I went to North Shore High School on the east side of Houston. And people would say, oh, I got a screw tape that has this song on it. And somebody would say, oh, well, I have one that has this. And you might trade it because you want to hear this other one. And so there was this kind of economy of screw tapes where people I knew would just trade them looking for a song they wanted. And then it was the box, 97.9, where I started finally hearing it on the radio. And so it went kind of from this cultural form that was more underground that people who might have a tape might tell you about it or let you borrow it or trade it with you to something that went on the radio. And I think that when the box starts playing it is when it starts to become a kind of Houston culture and starts to spread. And so it starts on the South side with DJ Screw and then spreads and then the North side gets its own kind of version of screw as well and it just kind of grows and becomes a citywide culture now would you say there's a difference in culture from houston as opposed to dfw and the metroplex because the doc for people that don't know he's originally from dallas got his start in the feel of fresh crew erica badu from dallas and how and also ron c i believe had a record called trendsetter which was a dope record he's out of dallas and can you explain the difference between houston culture and dallas fort worth metroplex culture yeah i think that you know the cities are about four hour drive apart both on the eastern side of Texas, but Dallas being north, Houston being uh, more south. I think that that's one of the difference is geography, is that Houston is really a Gulf Coast city. And because of that, you know, being from the east side of Houston, I'm from 90 miles, uh, about, I'd say, an hour and a half to the Louisiana border. And so, you know, if you know anything about Southwestern Louisiana, that's where that Creole Cajun culture comes from. It's very Gulf Coast, Bayou, fried alligator, exotico kind of a culture. Yeah, yeah, it's a very Gulf Coast kind of culture. And over time, that's really influenced Houston. So I would say that culturally speaking, a lot of Black Houston in particular has those roots in southwestern Louisiana. So that gives Houston a different kind of cultural flavor in that there's a back and forth between, say, Lafayette and even as far east as New Orleans into Houston because New Orleans and Houston are connected by I-10. And so I grew up going back and forth on I-10 between New Orleans and Houston going through Cajun country in Louisiana. And so, you know, that that gives that Creole flavor to Houston is very strong. Of course, one of our most famous exports being Beyonce and Solange. 
And, you know, Beyonce especially has talked a lot about being Creole and everything. And so I think that she helped bring that Creole flavor in Houston, uh, something that people didn't really know about a lot. She helped uh, make that a little bit more known about our culture in Houston. And so that does make us a little different from Dallas, which is actually closer to like Oklahoma and the kind of Southern Plains, you know, instead of being a Gulf Coast city, you know, we're also an hour from Galveston, about an hour, depending on what part of Houston you're from, to Galveston. So beach life and coastal life is real important in Houston too. Whereas, you know, Dallas gives you a different vibe. It's a different kind of Texas up there. You know, they have different accents from us even. Uh, their music historically doesn't draw on Louisiana music in the same way that Houston music does either. But, you know, the, I, I would say we're like we're like close cousins. You know, we might not have grown up in the same household, but we're the same family, you know. Right. And so I think that's why it's Dallas to Houston music translates real well. But we do have some some very different cultural backgrounds that we draw from. Right. And it's funny how you mentioned how Houston and Louisiana has a close connection. And I'm thinking that probably during the early days of Cash Money and No Limit, a lot of those early records were making their way to Houston and you all were getting some of that bounce influence. Oh yeah, that bounce influence is huge in Houston. We get, you know, I think that a lot of musicians over the years have traveled that I-10 corridor between New Orleans and Houston. So, I mean, at different points, all of those cash money and no limit people have homes in Houston. You know, we consider them part of the Houston uh, scene, really, because all of them at least have a house there or they have lived there at some point. One of the first places that even um, when No Limit was getting started, Master P would come out to Houston and fill CDs from the trunk of his car. So Houston as an audience for New Orleans music and vice versa, Houston music traveling over to Louisiana is also real strong for the city's culture. Mm -hmm. The only thing I had to say about that, that early bounce stuff was that thankfully it did not make its way up to North Carolina because had it did, some of my friends that were in middle school, boy, I'm just going to leave that at that because if you know bounce <laughs> music, you're thinking about sweaty gyms, sweaty dance halls, girls getting down on the floor. Shout out to David Banner, Mississippi Crooked Letter and just sweat, dance, heat, and you know what happens when those combinations mix, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, bounce is just, it's music for humid places, you know? <laughs> I think it's just, it's just that kind of, like you said, sweaty kind of, you know, it's, a, it's um, I think that I heard so much bounce when I was growing up that I didn't even really connect it with something outside of Houston because there's just so much overlap and so much back and forth between Louisiana and Houston that I considered that part of our local sound, I guess local very broadly, but it, it was always so influential to us. And it's why you hear, you can hear elements of that frequently in Houston music and you hear the influence of Houston music on, on Louisiana too. Right, and also not too far from Houston is 
Port Arthur, home of Jimmy Johnson. UGK. Janice <laughs> Joplin, UGK, as you mentioned, rest in peace, Pimp C. So can we talk about the impact of UGK? Yes. I mean, you know, a lot of people link UGK to Houston specifically because, of course, they moved there. And that's how they really got into the industry from Houston. But I think it's so important, like you said, that that we point out that they come from Port Arthur because Port Arthur has such a, a, a an important musical history in of itself. And, you know, I think when you really listen to UGK, especially some of their earlier work, you know, uh, and stuff like Pinky Ring and, and those kind of songs from UGK, they bring especially, I think, uh, a country, rural East Texas kind of vibe into things that does make them different from the ghetto boys and some of the things that you would get on rap a lot. And I think they represent this kind of movement also of small town East Texas into Houston, which has also been really important. You know, uh, part of my family comes from East Texas and moved to the city. And so I think that they brought that element to Houston hip hop, that reminder of that a lot of Texas is uh, from these little small towns that, you know, talking. I was talking about going from Houston into Louisiana, where you would go through Port Arthur on I-10, when you make that trip from Houston into. So they're part of that world, that I-10 kind of corridor. So it makes sense that they wound up in Houston eventually. But yeah, they, they bring that element of the, the more small town South into hip hop that I think is really important. A lot of times Southern cities can overshadow the small towns when we talk about Southern hip hop, right? Like if you say, hip hop in the South, the first places people are going to mention are going to be the cities, Atlanta, New Orleans, Houston, Memphis, you know, we tend to think of uh, cities because those are where the huge populations are. But I think that UGK reminds us of the importance of small town South in the creation of Southern hip hop too. And you mentioned David Banner, being from Mississippi, not from a huge urban area either, that uh, I think UGK is, is really rich for that as well and is being part of the origin of trap music. You know, I think without UGK, there would never have been trap, right? And so another reason why, you know, when we think of a song like Pocket Full of Stones, that it's important to remember that this, this is Port Arthur, Right. They moved to Houston. And so that's why when people talk about them and they say UGK from Houston, I'm like, no, Port Arthur, you got to give that town its respect and its place in, in history. Right. And also I should mention Stephen Jackson from Port Arthur. Shout out to Stephen Jackson, Matt Barnes, all the smoke. I mess with heavy. And then Kendra Perkins, I believe, from Beaumont, which is not too far from Port Arthur. As well. Not too far. Right. Right. Right, and we all know that Texas is a football crazy state where you play, your daddy play, your brother play, your mama cheer, your daughter, your daughter cheer. Yeah. But for a brief period in the '80s, and this past season, Calvin Sampson just took University of Houston to the Final Four. Shout out to Coach Sampson, member of the Lumbee Tribe down in Lumberton. North Carolina with the UNC Pembroke. So can we just talk about the impact of the University of Houston, what Guy Lewis and Fast Slamma Jamma meant to the city? 
Yeah, I, I love that you gave that historical background of, you know, when people think about Texas, they think of football, right? That then five slam pajama, you know, is part of what helps Houston become more of a basketball town, you know? And then, of course, some of the members of that team, like Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler, wind up becoming Houston Rockets, who also helped make Houston more of a basketball town in the 1980s. But yeah, I think uh, there's a new book on this by historian Frank Gritty, who's writing about sports in Texas in the 1970s, 1980s, and linking that to a history of desegregation, also a civil rights history. You know, and I think that Slam Jamma was also important for that transition period in college sports where you started having more Black athletes at these uh, NC2A schools, these high-profile sports programs. And, you know, there's a, there's a long history of desegregation of sports and college sports. And I think Fosslam Jamma is something that helped also, even, even the nickname, calling it that, helped to link NC2A basketball to Black culture. You know, and I, I think that that's when we start looking at the origins of, of basketball, especially being something cool, you know, to young people and to young Black people seeing themselves in, represented by young college athletes. I think that was a really important turning point in sports history and, and Black history. Yeah, it was definitely the beginnings of Blackness being in full effect because you had the University of Houston, you had the late John Thompson's teams at Georgetown, the football teams at the University mm -hmm. of Miami, and then later to come at Michigan with the Fab Five. Right, right. So you got these uh, college athletes who become icons to younger people, you know? And so I think that for someone my age, I was, I was young in the 80s, but seeing that kind of thing on TV. And then later with the TV show, A Different World, helped make collegiate Blackness really noticeable to me, something that was part of Black culture. You know, and so I think sports as well as TV, like I say, with A Different World, School Days, the film by Spike Lee, helped to create this kind of image of Black and collegiate, putting those things together that I think for me in my mind, were important to me when I thought about going to college later, you know, that I had these images of young Black university people. That was important for me to imagine myself going off to college later. Right. And also should mention those Temple teams coached by the late John Chaney. Now, you and I share something in common where we both went to PWIs. For those of you that don't know mm -hmm. what PWIs are, that's predominantly white institutions. Yourself, University of Texas at Austin and myself, University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And talk about the line of trying to find a black space in a majority white atmosphere where you can have that sense of HBCU life, but at the same time know that I'm in an area where the majority may not understand where it is that I come from. This is probably their first exposure being around African-Americans. Oh yes, I was such a part of my experience going to school in Austin was, that was for me when I started to realize that 
Texas was a really different state than I thought it was. You know, growing up in Houston, like I said, not that far from Louisiana, I came from a community that diversified dramatically between the 80s and 90s to where when I graduated high school, my high school was so very diverse, all kinds of different people going there. And then I moved to Austin and go to University of Texas, where the people I was around in my high school who looked like us were minorities, extreme minorities. At UT, it was maybe 4% Black when I went there in the 90s. And so it, it was a bit of culture shock to go from a place where there was all this diversity, all these different shades of brown that I saw every day, to going to a place where I could be in a lecture hall with 300 people, but maybe five of us were Black. Maybe, you know, and so I really think that that's how I started to get interested more in African-American history as well as African history. What started me on the path to being an historian was I had a really great African history professor who exposed me to this these histories that I had never learned about in high school. And so I started wondering, well, why didn't we ever learn anything about the continent of Africa? Maybe we spent that one day on Cleopatra, but as far as Sub-Saharan Africa, no, there was nothing there. And same thing, I started taking a lot of classes in Latin American history as well, because I thought, well, technically, Texas used to be part of Latin America, right? It was part of Mexico. Why is it that I grew up in Texas, never learning anything about our Mexican past other than, you know, the Texans defeated Santa Ana. You know, that that's the extent of it. We never learned anything more about the history of Mexico, the history of Latin America, even though we had that proximity to that region and used to be part of it before war. And so I started, for me, those classes, Latin American studies, African-American studies helped become that space for me. I think that being at a PWI just filled in me this kind of hunger, this desire to know more. But then also, you know, made me wonder why is it that we've got these universities that are supposed to represent our state? You know, and Texas does have a lot of brown and black people in it. Uh, but at the same time, that's not the representation that you're always going to get when you go to campus and walk around and look and say, how is this a state that has such a large Latinx population that has always had a pretty sizable black population, but you're not seeing it reflected on campus. But then, as I said, when I started talking about this, uh, it, also realizing there were a lot of people that I met who grew up in very white towns who had never been exposed to anyone who was black or brown before. And I realized some of the people I met had actually grown up in sundown towns, you know, places like Vider, Texas, where, you know, historically you got to get out by 6 p.m., you know, and that even though these towns like Vider aren't that far from Houston, people who grew up there weren't exposed to people who looked like me at all. And that that was by design, you know? And so I think that going to University of Texas opened me up to some of the realities of what Texas history really was and how that was still being reflected on the campus.
Right. And then, of course, you know, with University of Texas, football runs it. And then, of course, what we're seeing now with the NCAA and how they're kind of so, sort of slowly starting to come around with the use of image and likeness. And then they just made permanent the transfer portal where athletes can transfer to any school for a one year exemption where they can play right away without sitting out. And look at the 30 for 30 pony excess about SMU and their whole mess and how they get the death penalty and just how I think the NCAA is facing the reckoning to where, hey, we're making all this money for you. And you tell me if somebody gives me free groceries or a little bit of pocket change, I get slapped with an NCAA violation. Yes, you know, it's hard not to look at this through the lens of exploitation it can feel exploitative especially when like i said schools like university of texas you know i i am a proud longhorn you know i bleed orange as they say in austin i'm very proud of having gone there and and i love my alma mater but my school has struggled on issues of diversity for a very very long time and so it feels like exploitation when you have schools that historically have not been that open to Black students. But then you look at the basketball court during a game. You look at a football field during the game. And you see all this young Black talent that is earning money for the school. And you think, well, okay, now the representation through athletics is through Black bodies. And when it comes to academics, though, it still feels like tokenization. So it does, you know, when you look at that history, I don't know how you can't see that. It's feeling a bit exploitative. And I think that it is, like you said, a reckoning in the NCAA that I'm I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad we're having these conversations because, you know, I think we should be farther. We were talking about Fossil and Majama. We should be farther than this. It shouldn't be, you know, 40 years later. We're st- still talking about PWIs that have such small populations of black students, uh, unless you, unless they're, you know, making money from you athletically, you know, and that's, like I said, it feels exploitative. Now, University of Houston, I actually think is a great example of a school though, that has worked very hard to have a diverse student population. You know, I think University of Houston feels more like it represents the city of Houston. A lot of people call modern Houston one of the most diverse cities in the United States. And University of Houston kind of feels like that. There there are a a very substantial population of students of color who are at that university. So, I mean, there are some schools like U of H went from PWI to something that is way more diverse. I don't think you could call it a PWI at all nowadays. So it can be done. Right, and can we talk about the intersectionality between PWIs and HBCUs? Because like I mentioned, I went to the University of North Carolina in Greensboro and how 45 minutes up Interstate 40 is Winston-Salem State University, about seven minutes up Market Street, North Carolina A&T. And you're not within that far of a drive from all the HBCUs and the Research Triangle Park area with North Carolina Central, St. Nog, Shaw, and how you're still able to get that HBCU experience by either going to their campus or some of the students coming to you. Cause I know that was the case for me at UNCG where the students at both colleges would intersect. 
I think it's also that way in Houston because Texas Southern is in third ward, uh, an historically black community. But U of H is also very nearby, kind of on the outskirts of that area. And so I think that like for students in Houston, there are people who go to U of H who spend a lot of time over at the Texas Southern campus. So I think that, yeah, if, depending on the urban area or even the even in some rural areas, you might have that as well. There can be that back and forth, that sharing. Uh, you know, in Austin, we didn't have as much of that. In Austin, there is a, an HBCU in East Austin, a smaller one, that I think that in part, it's about the, the kind of racial geography of Austin to where the two didn't merge. And in fact, there's an interstate that runs through the middle of Austin, I-35, and I-35 actually disconnected East Austin, which East Austin is historically black and brown, and I-35 cut that part of Austin off from downtown and University of Texas, right? So there's this kind of structural barrier that's between the two. And that structure is also kind of meant a, a kind of disconnect also, not just physical, but also a kind of a mental disconnect between uh, Eastern Austin and the campus of University of Texas. And so when I was a senior, my roommate and I, my roommate is Colombian, and she and I both wanted to just live around more brown and black communities. So we made the decision to move across 35. And a lot of our friends thought we were crazy because you don't bridge that gap in Austin. Now, of course, if you know modern Austin, it's so gentrified that Eastern Austin is not majority black and brown anymore. It's become a white middle-class area because of gentrification, you know, but I think it depends on where you are. I think people in Houston, like I said, at Texas Southern and U of H, I think that there's room for that because they're both kind of in the third ward area. Places like Austin, there was there was much more of a disconnect. Mm, and for those of you that have never been to an HBCU football game, halftime is what? Yeah, I've always been very jealous of that. My husband went to Morehouse uh, so he comes from out of the, that it, Black Atlanta collegiate world. And I was always very jealous of that. You know, um, I think uh, PWI halftimes can be a little stale by comparison. You know, um, the, and you know, the Black HBCU halftime tradition has influenced so much of R&B and hip hop music as well. I think that's an area of research that people need to do much, much more on how the sounds of the HBCU band go on to influence the music. I mean, we've got Beyonce at Coachella as a great modern example when she actually brought in HBCU musicians and she uses that whole thing as a kind of theme for her entire perform Coachella performance. I think that really helps highlight it, but you can look in all these different ways, this back and forth that goes on between R&B and hip hop and HBCU musical production. Right, because when you look at all of the HBCU bands and their influence, and of course the film Drumline, how it's just been permeated worldwide. And if you go to a Battle of the Bands competition, you are going to get a show, because my high school, predominantly African-American, 
their whole getup was HBUC, HBCU style. Everything from dance right. to the cadence to the showmanship, choreography, you were getting an HBCU style performance at the high school level. Right. And I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think you could see that in a lot of communities where HBCUs are a major presence. So like the Ocean of Soul marching band in Houston at Texas Southern has influenced so much of the way that Houston high school bands play. And as a matter of fact, there's a high school in Houston that calls their band the Baby Ocean of Soul, right? Because of that influence from Texas Southern. And, you know, of course, a lot of high school musicians go on to play in those college bands as well. And my research on Houston music, when I was writing the book Houston Bound, one thing that I found is that Houston's jazz scene in the 1940s and 1950s was made up entirely of people who had played in bands at African-American high schools there in the city. So they went from being in these music classes and playing in parades and at halftime shows to by the time, sometimes before they even had gotten out of their teens, they were already professional musicians on Houston's jazz scene. And uh, so you've got people from high schools like Wheatley High in Houston's Fifth Ward, in Jack Gates High in Third Ward, as well as some of the other Black high schools that developed in other parts of the city as well, Booker T. Washington High. All of these places uh, end up producing these jazz musicians like Arnett Cobb, for example, one of the most famous jazz musicians to come out of Houston, learned how to first play a saxophone at Wheatley High School when he was 13 years old. You know, so I think that there's a there's a very rich history of black musicianship that starts in uh, these black high schools, HBCUs, and then becomes professional. Right. And thank you for bringing this to my remembrance. Can we talk about Thunder Soul and the impact of the Cashmere High School Stage Band? Yes, of course. Uh, Cashmere's band. In fact, on my show, Soul Stories. I use one of Kashmir Stage Band's performances as my wrap-up music. It's my outro music. When I'm wrapping up the show, I use Kashmir Stage Band's performance of, they do a cover of Thank You For Letting Me Be Myself Again by Sly and the Family Stone. And it is one of those songs that just, it reminds me of home. I hear those sounds and it's, it's just, it's Houston. There is nothing more Houston to me than the sounds of Kashmir Stage Band. And, you know, Jamie Foxx helped to produce a documentary about the Cashmere Stage Band, Texas Thunder Soul, as you mentioned. And the soundtrack to that really helped illuminate the importance of this band. You know, um, in my book, Houston Mound, I, I'm talking about the early 20th century musical history. So I mostly talk about, I mostly go through high schools through the 40s. And Kashmir Stage Band becomes famous a little bit after that in the 1960s. But it's, again, another really important way that you see high school bands and college bands being people who helped create a soundscape for a city, you know, and it's how important these Black institutions are to Black communities and to the, the cities and counties that they're part of. 
Right, because looking at that documentary after that, I ordered the soundtrack so I could listen to Head Wiggle and how for them to be high school kids, they were just as tight as any professional band and they had all the awards to prove it. Yes, they were. I mean, when they had a performance, people are showing up to see this band like they would play to go see Isaac Hayes or something. You know, I mean, we're talking about this was world-class musicianship there. And uh, yeah, yeah, Casimir Stage Band helps make, I think, the Black bands a tradition that, you know, one thing about Black Houston is that it moves, it keeps spreading, right? So in Houston, there's a new Black community every decade or so. And one thing that happens because of the, the roots of of that coming out of early Black communities in the places I named Wheatley High School, Yates, Booker T. Washington, they were some of the first to have these kind of bands. As Black Houston moves and spreads to different places, that tradition gets carried with it. So like a lot of my cousins grew up in a suburb called Missouri City. Travis Scott also lived in Missouri City. It's a, it's a place that since the 80s has been a real important Black space to uh, also zero, zero, uh, most city dawn, right? Missouri City is real important to modern Black Houston. And Willow Ridge High School carried the torch of the high school Black band and the, the great halftime performances. One of my cousins performed in the drill team for Willow Ridge, you know? So I think as Black Houston grows and spreads, there become these new marching bands and new high schools that start to develop over time. So you can really see how it's a really fundamental part of, of the culture there. And as Houston diversifies, you also start having other people become part of the tradition. So in Houston, especially, a lot of Latinx youth are now part of these high school bands at these schools as well, right? So the tradition grows, spreads, diversifies. Right, and I wanna go back to the Houston rap scene for a minute, um, mentioned Little Troy, wanna be a baller, but everybody thought that Houston on a national scale would break once, you know, Slim Thug, Paul Wall, Mike Jones came out with that whole movement. And then it kind of sort of went back to being a local thing because a lot of people don't know they were already successes before everybody outside of Houston and the surrounding areas heard about them. That's a really great point because I think that that is something to be said about Houston. You know, it's a very big city. Uh, in terms of size, it's huge. I think possibly LA is the only city that's as big as Houston in terms of just space, land. You know, it's a real spread out kind of place. And there's a lot of Houstonians as well. It's the fourth largest city now. Some people predict that it might pass Chicago uh, sometime, you know, so it's a big and growing city. But with that means there can be a, a huge audience just locally. When you've got that many people that live in the Houston area and then beyond the city, there's a larger metro area. And that connection, like we talked about earlier, the connection with Dallas, our cousins who are up north and our cousins in Louisiana, 
Houston music can stay local and you can be successful even if nobody outside of Texas or Louisiana ever even hears of you. If you're a Houston musician, your stuff is going to spread in one of the largest metro areas in the country. And then it's that influence might go up to Dallas. It might go out to San Antonio. San Antonio folks love Houston music too. It's going to go out east to New Orleans. So you can make a very good living. You can make a good life for yourself being a Houston rapper whose influence is local just because that local population is so big. And, you know, I think it's just kind of part of the Houston personality to also just kind of be like, we do our own thing. If the rest of the country likes what's going on in Houston, great. If they're not listening to it, hey, we still got a local uh, kind of local vibe here that spreads to cities that are nearby. So, you know, you kind of don't need the national to actually make a good living in music in a place like Houston. So I think I think that's what happens. There are eras when Houston hip hop will go national and then it'll go back to being local again. But, you know, like we were talking earlier about the influence of Chopped and Screwed, that's one way that we still continue to see the influence of Houston, even if sometimes young people don't know it came from Houston, you can still hear the influence. Right. And here on Beyond the Album Cover, we do not endorse lean, any of that stuff. That's not cool. Don't do it. So, and I always felt that North Carolina, we never had that luxury musically to be localized in terms of sound because by us being in the middle, you know, with everything coming from Virginia with Timberland, Missy, the Neptunes, and then Atlanta with everything that was coming out of there and being not that far from New York you had a mix of everything because you had a lot of people from different parts of the country coming to school or relocating to North Carolina. And it was kind of hard musically for us to find our own niche. And sure, we had, you know, Joe to see and Ski Beats and everybody else that came after that. But it's now good to see North Carolina really getting recognition musically on the hip hop scene with J. Cole, Rhapsody, the baby, Luke Nasty, stunning for Vegas. Right. That's very interesting that North Carolina's location might have for a while kind of stifled the development of its own sound that then carried out. That, that's very interesting. Yeah. Then also uh, Little Brother as well, Knife Wonder, Fonte, Big Pooh. So yeah. what was the culture shock like for you going from University of Texas, Austin, all the way to the Midwest and University of Wisconsin, Madison, besides the fact that I got to dress in four to five layers because of those harsh Midwest winners. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, for one thing, going from Texas to Wisconsin, the, the scale of the places were so different. You know, the population of Houston was bigger than the entire population of the state of Wisconsin when I got there. So that already was crazy that I was like, wow, there are more people from my hometown than this whole state. You know, so that was already just kind of a difference going from more major cities to a college town, Midwestern college town kind of vibe. That was different. And also, you know, Madison was close to 90% white when I moved there. And so this was a place where, you know, when I, I went there for grad school. So of course I worked as a teaching assistant 
for part of my time there. And I was in Afro-American studies. And I was shocked that some students had come from places, you know, where they were still referring to colored and Negro when they would write essays. I'm not even kidding. I mean, we're talking about the 2000s. And I was having to correct 20-year-olds on, you know, it's really not appropriate to say Negro anymore. You should say Black or African-American, right? That I was having to have these conversations in this century kind of blew me away. But the great thing about Madison is Chicago was just a few hours to the south. And so I got exposed to Chicago cultures by living in Madison. I was always going down there for shows. And so I started to learn more about house music from going down to Chicago a lot. And I think that I developed an appreciation for Midwestern music uh, from being there. And then, of course, we would sometimes go over to Minneapolis, home of Prince, The Time, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis. So there were some urban places that weren't too far away that you could drive to. Milwaukee was just to the east, and Milwaukee had a much larger Black population than I expected when I moved there. And so I was like, okay, Black Milwaukee, I'm learning something about this. So it did expose me to some new things, but I had to leave Madison sometimes in order to just be around Black culture or sometimes to just see, I could go a whole day without seeing somebody else who looked like me. And that was tough and especially ironic because I was there to study, to get a master's in Afro-American studies is what took me up there for the first time. And so it sort of amazed me that this place that was close to being 90% white had though invested time and money to African-American history. You know, so it was it was an interesting paradox that you may not have had a large black population, but there were so many professors and librarians who had taken the time to find all these sources. Uh, like there was a librarian at Wisconsin who had made sure that the library there, the historical society had a copy of every black newspaper that had ever existed in US history, right? So things like that showed an investment. And, uh, you know, we were talking about PWIs earlier. I think that's the kind of thing that can help diversify the collegiate life in the United States is if more PWIs realize there are different ways you can invest in talking about African-American history, talking about communities of color, right? Like that, what brought me to Wisconsin was that professors and librarians invested in our history. So when I wanted to learn more about African-American history, that was a place to go. Mm, and you mentioned Minneapolis and Prince. And can we just talk about how with Prince, he bended all of the norms, broke all of the rules and said, I'm going to march to the beat of my own drum, do it my way and fight against a system that historically for Black artists has never been in their favor. It was pretty much preaching, do it yourself and doing it online before everybody else caught on. You know, there's a, a really interesting book that helped shed some light for me about Prince and that whole Minneapolis, St. Paul, Twin Cities kind of found. Because, you know, as you say, like Prince uh, broke a lot of the rules. And sometimes it's hard to even categorize Prince music or Minneapolis music. It's steeped in soul and funk, but also rock and roll as well. Right. So it it 
crosses into all this different these different musical territories. And uh, I was reading a book about early Minneapolis soul music. It's called um, "There's Got to Be Something Here." I don't know if you've heard of this. It's a by a, a DJ. She's a, I think does radio and researched the history of Minneapolis soul and R and B before Prince. Got to check that out. And yeah, and one of the things that she points out in this book is that. Minneapolis really didn't offer a lot of different spaces for Black musicians to play at. And so even though Minneapolis didn't have a formal segregated system, right, it wasn't segregated by law necessarily by the state government, there were still these ways that segregation operated, like a lot of downtown bars and clubs just would not hire Black musicians. And so she says in that one of the reasons why so many, so many Black artists in Minneapolis bridged into different sounds and why so many of those bands were integrated, right? Like Prince and the Revolution, this very integrated band, is because the Revolution had a better shot at getting a gig in a Minneapolis club if there were white members of the band. Because if they thought that it was a Black band, they wouldn't even let you gig there, right? So that there could be a reason why you had, out of necessity, you wanted your bands to have to be more interracial so it wouldn't get stigmatized and therefore segregated, you know? And also, there wasn't a lot of Black radio in Minneapolis and St. Paul in that area. So people like Prince growing up there what did he hear on the radio? Well, he heard Led Zeppelin, you know? He was exposed to the sounds of rock music because they weren't even playing a lot. So he had his parents' R&B and soul records, uh, but then on the radio, he was hearing rock. And so, yeah, she makes the argument that it's in part the segregation of Black Minneapolis that leads to that sound, you know? And I, I thought that was very, a very interesting kind of perspective on Minneapolis, because I think outside of Minneapolis, you know, outside of Prince, if you think of Minneapolis, there's not a lot of Black culture that I think a lot of us would associate with the Twin Cities, you know, so everything that's kind of spawned by Prince and the time and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, I think uh, is a, a reflection of both the whiteness of Minnesota but also how Black musicians took what opportunities they could. And nowadays, you know, we think of Minneapolis, Prince might be one of the first things we think of, you know, so they took something out of a place that we think of as, you know, a very Northern European white state and, and made a sort of Black imprint on it, I think, right. which is really special. Right, and you mentioned how them integrating their band was their back doorway to get in the front door, a la Sly and the Family Stone and other bands that were integrated. And I don't know if you've ever seen this um, through the Twin Cities PBS affiliate. There was a documentary in, I believe, 87 called The Minneapolis Sound. And it was showing, you know, bands from Minneapolis, um, show a clip of Jam and Lewis recording with New Edition before the Heartbreak album even came out at the original Flight Time studio. Um, Husker Du um, showed the Jets performing at a concert in Minneapolis. And I'd say with a lot of Jam and Lewis records, even though they were funk and R&B, they had that 
pop sheen because like you stated earlier they grew up listening to a lot of am radio with pop and just had pop sensibilities when it came to their writing and production style right i'm gonna have to find this documentary that that really sounds fantastic and um i'm writing about new edition right now My, oh, i'm working on a new project you should not have told uh, me i'm a huge edition <laughs> fan can we talk about their impact and how all six not only as a group but as solo acts have influenced the world because if it wasn't for them there'll be no new kids on the block no battery no no in sync 98 degrees and michael bivens probably would not discover these four guys from philly boys to men right you know i i love new edition with all my heart they are they are my first loves <laughs> I, I fell in love with them when I was a little girl and I heard Candy Girl for the first time. And it has been a lifelong love with them. And, you know, I, I decided to, to write about them because I feel like their influence has not been appreciated as fully as it needs to 100%. be. I think that, you know, the BET miniseries a few years ago, you know, did a good job of, I think, just reminding everybody of how loved they've been and how influential they've been over the years. But I also think that um, as beloved as they are to a lot of, I think, African-American Gen X and millennials, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize how all these different acts spawned from them. You know, I, I'm shocked when I find people who don't know that Bobby Brown started with New Edition or who don't realize that Bill Biv DeVoe came out of New Edition. Or like you said, Michael Bivens with his Biv 10 productions that he is the one who, you know, discovers Boys to Men and that Boys to Men is the name of a New Edition song. <laughs> you know, there are so many people I've talked to since I started writing this book where when I just say something like that, Boys to Men got their name from a New Edition song. They just stare at me blankly like, what? <laughs> you know, so I think even Boys to Men got a star on the Hollywood fame before New Edition. New Kids got their star before New Edition. And yeah, Emmy did get theirs. But the fact that the people they influenced got stars on the walk of fame before they did shows how people don't always appreciate what they've given to the industry. And uh, for me, one of the things that I'm writing about is also, in addition to influencing all of these different acts, right, I think that they help create the modern boy band. You know, they're building on the Jackson 5 and building on the sounds that came earlier from the 60s and 70s, but they remix it and give it something new, especially by adding hip hop flavor to this, you know? And so I think that the sounds that New Edition brought out, these combinations of funk, pop, R&B, and hip hop, make them really important to the sounds of 80s and 90s music in ways that they're not given enough credit for. Right, because when I interviewed Danny from New Kids, he told me flat out, out his mouth, New Edition influenced us in all aspects from the way we perform, from the way we mm -hmm. look, not because of just the Maurice connection, it's just the fact that we literally wanted to be them and they would show love to us by coming to their shows and vice versa. And we always 
they always mentioned new edition paved the way for us. And a lot of people got it twisted once new kids pop success really took hold, which is interesting in its aspect because we think about new kids put together by Maurice Starr, black man, their whole camp, all black, but they become the mm -hmm. big pop group in the world and set the stage for right. the pop side, like what New Edition did on the R&B side. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that the way you just characterize that is so perfect that they also come out of a part of Boston where their generation had also been bust. You know, Boston had this very controversial school busting program that got violent. There was a lot of violent resistance to it from some white parents who didn't want integration of high schools there and some members of new kids on the block wind up in the Roxbury end up in the more black parts of Boston because they'd been part of that school busing and that exposed them to the black music that was coming out of, of the black parts of Boston and so yeah I think you're exactly right in that um one of my favorite clips of the new kids on the block is when they perform for and they uh, perform at the Apollo Theater on Showtime at the Apollo, and they come out and they they do please don't go girl you know one of one of their hit records, and the Apollo just goes wild for them as soon as they come out with that falsetto please don't go girl the crowd just loses it you know and it, it's a reminder of that they were in in black venues early before that that pop success that you talked about. They were performing in Black communities and Black clubs before any of that. So yeah, I think that's a part of New Kids history that has kind of been lost over the decades, but really important. Yeah, because they actually did an original version of Please Don't Go Girl that only got airplay on BET. And Danny told me that Maurice Starr paid for that out of pocket. It was at the house of Larry Wu, who put together the group Finest Hour, another Boston-based R&B group, and how it was before pop started to take a hold and Columbia was just solely marketing them as an R&B group. But once pop got ahead, we're going to do the nicer version at Coney Island, send it to MTV, send your photos to Nickelodeon Disney Channel, and it was off to the races, but they always stayed true to their R&B roots. Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. I saw, I know Donnie Wahlberg does some interviewing now and I think has a show or a podcast. And uh, I saw him interviewing um, was RBRM, right? Another new edition offshoot, uh, Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie, Bobby, Ricky, and Mike were on this show, and it, it was so interesting. It was a Boston love fest. You could you could really just feel that love uh, between New Kids and New Edition. So you know, it, it's really it's really a beautiful kind of thing. And I think Boston is an underrated music city. You know, Aerosmith, I think cars, uh, and we could go yeah all the acts that came out of Beantown. Yeah, yeah, a lot of good music out of Beantown. And I think, uh, you know, New Edition is is really building on something strong that was there, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of musical cultures, you know, floating around the Roxbury there in, in Boston that they help to, you know, that they take across the world. And I, I think that Boston should be considered one of those R&B soul cities, you know?
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely need that new edition, new kids tour. I'm claiming that, and I'll be front and center. I don't care. And can we talk about the impact of the group Troop? And unfortunately, um, Reggie Warren from Troop passed away. And for me, Troop in new edition, my two influences. I mean, spread my wings. Great record. I didn't even know about the Jacksons original. All I do is think of you until years later. And the, and also same thing goes to their cover of Sweet November off of the Deeper album, which was originally done by The Deal off the Material Things album. So can we talk about the impact of Troop? Yes, and you know, I think Troop is also, you know, I believe that when they got their record contract, they auditioned with a new edition song, right? So that, that connection too, that, you know, they were also inspired to get into this with, you know, by hearing new edition. But yeah, talk about underrated groups. You know, Troop was really, uh, when I was in middle school, was something that they were all over R&B radio during that time, really important, right at the same time that In Vogue was getting started, Troop was right in there at the same time and who were constantly played on the radio. And like you, I heard all, all I do is think of you from Troop first. I heard that version and was obsessed with it when it came out. And then only because of that song did I hear the Jackson 5 original. I had no idea, no idea that Troop wasn't the first to make that. I think that uh, their harmonies, the vocal quality of, of Troop is especially so underrated. I mean, these guys were really, really talented. Right, and their dancing was very different from New Edition because New Edition, of course, you know, with Brooke Payne, who I had a chance to interview, his choreography was steeped in male groups of the 60s and 70s, like the Stylistics, Shy Lights, Blue Magic, while Troop, it was street, but polished at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Troop bringing those, some of the elements of hip hop dance and stuff into the repertoire. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right, and with them being from Pasadena, you know, being so close to LA, you got that influence right there. And can we talk about the impact of Teddy Riley and how he was able to merge R&B and hip hop together, fuse it to get New Jack Swing because prior to him, rapping R&B really wasn't meeting in the middle like that unless you heard records by Force MDs or Full Force who I feel was the precursor to what was to later come with Teddy because they were kind of meshing that with their own work, UTFO, Lisa Lisa and Nicole Jam. Mm -hmm. You know, with, with Teddy Riley, I think that he's so important in terms of, yeah, I think popularizing New Jack Swing. And it's really interesting to think that early on, he struggled getting that sound out. A lot of people turned him down. A lot of record companies, he he had the door shut in his face a lot. And I think that in part, kind of a, a stigma to hip hop that existed in the mid, even though, you know, we, we talk about the pinnacle of hip hop, right? And that by the late 80s, hip-hop music had really, really started to become um, 
more polished and really spectacular. At the same time, there was this real stigma against it because people associated hip hop with the street and with violence. And it was sometimes hard to even have hip hop acts book a venue because people assumed there was gonna be a shooting or stabbing or something there. So there were so many stereotypes about hip hop and who listened to it that I think that there was probably some hesitance to put anything that was that heavily steeped in hip hop music on the air in some places. You know, I remember there being radio stations that would promise we don't play rap, you know? And so, yeah, a lot of doors shut in, in Teddy Riley's face early on before he, you know, starts to have major success with like Keep Sweat and things like that. And something else I think is important with Teddy Riley is that how he, also helps to helps with other generations with younger people too right like uh pharrell williams right pharrell and chad hugo of the neptunes who had their first songwriting credits working with teddy riley you know pharrell writes Teddy Riley's verse in the uh, Rex and Effects song right the um Rump Shaker, Rump Shaker. Rumshaker, right? Teddy, so Pharrell's first. Exactly. Like this is written by a teenage Pharrell, right? So that Teddy Riley also, not only with having the vision for his brand of New Jack Swing, that he also recognized the musical genius of Chad and Pharrell and who brings them into the industry. And they wrote uh, Tonight's the Night on Black Streets debut album and that sets them up to be influential as well and also bridging these different styles you know through the neptunes and through n-e-r-d so yeah i mean teddy riley's influence it's like this ripple effect that just keeps going through the industry right and it's crazy to think how when new jack swing was exploding how a lot of suburbia was soaking up this music because there's a clip on the mickey mouse club in 93 where you had a young Justin Timberlake, a young Ryan Gosling, a young J.C. <laughs> Chazé, and Dale Goldberg singing Cry For You by Jodeci. And then there's another clip of a young Christina Aguilera, a pre-invogue Rona Bennett, and another Mouseketeer singing Week by SWV. And it just shows how they were heavily listening to Jodeci, Mary J., SWV, and all of those acts that were booming in the late 80s to early to mid 90s and how yeah. they just kind of added their own flavor to it once they broke big with their solo acts and respectively in sync then of course backstreet boys were put together with infamously lou perlman well he wanted a voice to men sound with a new kid's look oh yeah yeah i think uh, that's a great great description and it's really interesting to think, you know, Jodeci and Disney might not seem like the most logical pair. Good life. thing they didn't hear knocking the boots because that wouldn't have made it past yeah. the threshold. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it's, it is fascinating, the kind of um, boom that you get and when people talk about pop in the late 90s, early 2000s. The pop produced by all the people you just mentioned, right? NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Christina, all of them. Brittany. That really, Brittany, when you boil it down, 
they're all doing some iteration of R&D, right? They've just taken it and made it a bit more mainstream. But you can listen. I mean, anybody who hears Christina Aguilera, you're listening to somebody who used to sing along to Whitney Houston. You know, you, you can hear it in her approach to the music. You can hear that when you listen to Justin Timberlake. So it just goes to show that influence of R&B and hip hop of the 80s and 90s that becomes pop and often performed by white artists. But those roots are, are still going back to things that people like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, Teddy Riley, all these people we've been talking about that they helped standardize, you know, but it becomes known as pop later, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because with just... Britney Spears. Yeah, go ahead about Britney. I was going to say, you know, when Britney Spears came out, the, I think that because she was, you know, blonde and white, the a lot of people, a lot of music journalists and stuff automatically compared her to Madonna, right? They thought, oh, you know, here's the blonde white girl who dances, you know, so they, they linked her to Madonna. But when I saw Britney for the first time and I saw that Hit Me Baby One More Time video where she's dancing in the gym, the first people I compared her to were Aaliyah and Janet Jackson. I thought they found a, a blonde girl who's kind of doing something in a Janet vein and more of a, you know, mm-hmm. but the first instinct is to, I think, compare her to someone else who's white. But when I saw Britney, I clearly saw the influence of, of Black artists on what she was doing. And now, you know, when she talks about her influences, she talks about how she grew up with Otis Redding and stuff. So, you know, she was very influenced by R&B and all the different places that R&B went in the 80s and 90s, blending with pop, blending with rock, blending with hip hop. But Britney was really inspired by a lot of black artists. And that's something that about her that People didn't talk about too much until Pharrell produces the I'm a Slave for You video and that, uh, the song rather, and I'm a Slave for You sounds so much to me like uh, Nasty Girl, Vanity, written and produced by Prince. You know, when I hear I'm a Slave for You, I cannot help but hear uh, Vanity Six. Mm. When I hear that song, you know, so like clearly Britney's music has always been steeped in in kind of R&B sensibilities. But I think that because of the race thing, people don't always acknowledge that influence. Right. Because when when I see Britney, I think of Janet and Paula Abdul. Paula Abdul, too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, But we would be remiss if we didn't mention the influence of freestyle music. Because like I mentioned earlier, Lisa Lisa, Nicole Jam. Y'all said acts like TKA, Sweet Sensation, Cover Girls, and how they were doing expose as well, doing R&B, but with a Latin flair to it. I think that freestyle is so overlooked. So overlooked. Uh, you know, I think the, the influence of freestyle is so huge on so many people. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. And I don't remember it being called freestyle when I was hearing it when I was young. You know, and freestyle is not a word that I heard until much, much later. So I didn't really know this music had a name. 
You know, I would hear it on R&B radio all the time. And to be honest, I didn't even know that some of those artists were like the face of freestyle was really a lot of young urban Latinas, right? All the people you were mentioning there, like the cover girls, expose, I loved so much. I just didn't know the word freestyle. I knew that this was a music that I loved and had kind of an urban edge to it, was very funky. As strong vocals, you know, so I, I loved the music that I was hearing on the radio and seeing on videos. I just didn't know that it had a name and had a, a genre behind it. Um, there's been a, there's a woman named Deb Vargas, uh, Dr. Deb Vargas works at Rutgers, who talks about the influence of freestyle on Selena. You know, and that really opened my eyes to that when she especially talks about the way that Selena dressed and wore her hair that she's really inspired by uh, people like Expose and Lisa Lisa, that there was a similar kind of look there. And I read Dr. Vargas's work and thought, oh, of course, you could you can definitely see it. Right, and there's a video of Selena before she broke bed performing in and around fairs or whatever. She's doing Ralph Tresvant's sensitivity and you know, very heavily influenced by the traditional Tejano sound, but also what was blasting on R&B and Top 40 radio. And I had a chance to interview Frankie J. He was telling me that when EMI signed Selena, how they didn't think that she would be a star in the English world. But I'm thinking, given how successful Gloria Estefan was at the time, that should have been your cue to say, hey, this is a demographic we need to pay attention to, we need to try to market her. And as we're seeing now with the success of, you know, J-Lo, Shakira, Camila Cabello, and Bad Bunny. Yeah, it blew up, right? It just exploded. Yeah, you know, it's. I think that's such an interesting thing about the, the people who have the power to make the decisions on what we see and hear, right? Who gets to decide on what's on TV? Who gets to decide what's on the radio? So often those people in those positions, when it when it comes to, uh, you know, racialized people, whether we're black or brown, you know, whether we're talking about Pacific Islander, Asian American, there's sometimes people tend to think that one person's success is like a flash in the pan, right? There's a kind of tokenization that can go on. So like you said, with the success of Gloria Estefan, Miami Sound Machine, you would think that that would have immediately opened up to, hey, there's a lot of very interesting music that's coming from different Spanish speaking communities. Maybe, you know, there's a wider audience for it, but somehow still, you know, there were people who were reluctant to see Selena as having crossover potential, you know, that it's, right sadly a way that that these things can go that sometimes it doesn't open up doors immediately right it still takes mm -hmm. a generation of work before you you get to something to where you've got all these um acts across genre of people who might have spanish last names you know right right kind of like the same thing with menudo because i'm sure menudo was bumping new edition and new kids they're doing the same oh, yeah. thing but just on the spanish tip Exactly. You know, that it's um, why wouldn't they market acts like that more broadly? I think that there can be this, ten, you know, I guess, a tokenization in some cases, or they think, oh, only 
Latinos want to hear other Latinos, right? Like, no, freestyle showed you, right, that there could be mass appeal for these for these kind of acts, you know. So um, with Selena, you know, her birthday was just what yesterday she would have turned 50 yesterday, you know, and I, I think about her influence, you know, you see the influence of Selena everywhere that I really wonder what, what she could have, what she could have been. She accomplished so much and such a short amount of time that the skies the, would have been the limit for her. And I think, you know, because again, where she was from, she first grew up in Lake Jackson, which is not that far from Houston. And then her family moves to Corpus Christi. And so because of that, she's influenced by all these different sounds as well. And she actually didn't grow up listening to Tejano music. It's something that she learned about. Uh, her father, of course, you know, uh, brought some of that influence in, but she learned to speak Spanish later, you know, whereas some people, when they first heard of her, assumed that she was, you know, Spanish speaking and only part of that world. But even if you look at how she grew up in Lake Jackson and Corpus, that she grew up listening to a lot of R&B music, pop music, rock music as well, that freestyle was really important to her, that she always had the potential to bridge into, into other things. You know, it just takes people being creative enough to see that potential. Right. And, you know, speaking of Texas and singers, this young man out of Waxahachie, Texas, to me, outside of Michael Jackson, best child singer I've ever heard in his production wow. with I'll Be Sure and Kyle West, who I've had a chance to interview, which you can catch. This young man vocally, bar none, can sing anybody under the table, Tevin Campbell. Oh, my goodness. Heaven, that is a voice I miss. You know, if there were some people, if I could make a list of people that I want to see back out there making new stuff, um, I, I don't know what Tevin Campbell's uh, into these days, but I would love to hear uh, to hear some more Tevin. His voice was really, I, I think, something I think about. You know, when I think about that time period of what we were talking about with Troop and everything, late 80s, early 90s, right around there, that Tevin Campbell was such a huge part of, of that time and making so many big radio hits uh, in the early 90s. I don't know what high school dances would have been like without Tevin Campbell's music, Can We Talk, and, and all of those types of things. And um, yeah, I, I, I am not, I think, does he live in Atlanta now? I'm not sure where he is, but wherever he is, Tevin, if you're listening or watching, you need to come out with a Powerline themed CD for all of us that grew up on a Goofy movie. We need that in our lives. And also redo Tell Me What You Want Me To Do. Side note, you can check out my interview that I did with Narada Michael Walden. Oh, great. Great. You've talked to so many people on here. Uh, I think that your podcast especially shows, uh, especially I, I like how you focus on the production a lot of times, right? Getting the people who were behind the scenes involved in the, in the production of so much of the music that we love, because I think that sometimes we forget that it's, it's a crew of people involved 
in in getting a song that we hear on a record or that we hear on the radio the getting that video on tv there's so many people involved with that and one of the things that i appreciate about the work that you do is also highlighting the people who've been involved in the production of the music i appreciate that we touched on beyonce earlier but her impact bar none is has been felt throughout the world and of course if it wasn't for Beyonce there'll be no Megan Thee Stallion or anybody else out of Houston without seeing how she played the game and how she's pretty much taken what those came before her did but just turning it up a whole nother notch while not dimming her blackness for anybody. You know, I really appreciate how Beyonce has made who she is and all of her influences part of her musicianship. I think that in part, I think that's kind of her secret weapon, right, is is not conforming to anybody else's standards of who she should be and how she sounds, that she is authentically Beyonce. And she does that by pulling on all of these different influences, right? Like, of course, when people think of Houston now, she's probably one of the first people uh, that they think of. Uh, When I first started writing about Houston when I was in graduate school, a lot of people didn't think I should write about the history of Houston because they said that's not a city that anybody knows anything about. It's not a city that anybody cares about. One of my professors literally said that nobody cares about Houston. It's not a place anybody ever thinks about, you know, but I think that by the time I finished it, Beyonce was this huge worldwide success. And when people thought of Houston, they thought of her. And after, because of Beyonce in part, people didn't even question why I was writing about Houston anymore. When I would bring up that I'd written this book about Houston, people would say, tell me about Beyonce. (laughs) So I think that she helped make Houston legible to a lot of people. Of course, we were talking about Houston hip hop earlier. And I think that people who were tuned in to hip hop music probably knew bits and pieces of Houston's hip hop history, rap a lot, then that sort of 2005 or so explosion that you got there. But Beyonce, especially her international success, I think made a lot of aspects of Houston and Southeastern Texas legible for people uh, and the way that she's always talking about how the cultures that she was exposed to down there influenced her. So like she did 15 years ago, a Spanish language EP, you know, and she, you know, did this in part uh, in acknowledging how important Latin America as well as uh, Latino populations in the United States have supported her music. And then also to show how Selena influenced her and influenced her style. So she has a remix of Irreplaceable, a Norteño remix that is so very rooted in a sort of Mexican-American, Texas, Northern Mexico sound. And so even in doing that, she's reminding you of the diversity of Texas and that influence on her as well. And I mentioned earlier, her Creole heritage is something that comes up again and again. So I think that, yeah, one of the things that has made her so successful is her authenticity, right? She's about exposing the things and and highlighting the things that 
make her part of the country rich, culturally rich, and showing that influence on her music, it makes her an individual. It makes her stand out and not like anybody else because she's remained true to showing a sort of Gulf Coast Blackness, right? A a sort of um, setting her videos in Lemonade in Louisiana, for example, right? That it's, she's very rooted, I would say, in, in who she is and the expressions of Blackness and brownness that have shaped shaped that region right and i believe it was in lemonade one of the videos she was paying homage to julie dash daughters of the dust which talks about the women and the culture of the low country the Gullah Geechee culture down in the low country south carolina georgia coastal that whole area yeah that that imagery that imagery there of women right the the women focused uh kind of southern gothic all the right that flavor from Daughters of the Dust definitely influences the visuals of the video, definitely. Uh, and in formation, right? The urban New Orleans uh of, of formation, I think. You know, I like I said, I think that um even as she is this international phenomenon, she's constantly reminding you that she's a black southern woman. You know, so she, instead of changing herself to fit something mainstream, I think that Beyonce has brought the mainstream to her world, right? She's made these Black Southern uh, cultural worlds so part of the mainstream now. And so I think that that's an important thing for, I think, a lot of young people to remember is that, you know, when people tell you no, because you don't fit into some kind of like dominant idea of what people think they want. If, you know, staying true instead of trying to mold yourself, change who you are to fit what's going on, right? If you can like stand strong and make other people see that your difference is what makes you interesting, that I I think that that's, that's something that I think Beyonce can be a valuable lesson for, right, that you can be Black, be unabashedly, unapologetically Black. You can be Gulf Coast, you know, and bring the rest of the world to that and make that legible. You know, I I think that that's really the key to Beyonce. Yeah, and speaking of not fitting into any boxes, what's your take on the bending of genres within country and how a lot of the newer country artists are taking influences and cues from pop, R&B, in addition to the traditional country that they probably grew up listening to. And then the, there's always been a presence of African-Americans in country music, going back to D. Fort Bailey, who was one of the first Blacks to perform at the Grand Ole Opry and the late Charlie Pride. But seeing the success in country of Darius Rucker, uh, Kane Brown, Reese Palmer, Mickey Guyton, and how you know the floodgates are really starting to open for African Americans to really take over country and to say that this ain't your grandpa's or grandma's country and them watching Hee Haw on Sunday nights. <laughs> you know, I, I think that gosh, it's such a complicated history with country music and, and black musicians. You know, you mentioned some of the people who were able to find an audience at different points, right? D. Ford Bailey and then uh, Charlie Pride. 
And, you know, there's a lot of years between them, between D. Ford Bailey and Charlie Pride, right? And then decades between the years of Charlie Pride's big uh, success in, in the Nashville country scene to now, right? It, there are these gaps, these huge gaps, right? So there's like maybe one a generation until here recently, like you said, with all the people you mentioned. And, you know, I think that one thing that's, important to the history with country is that like you know so much of country is steeped in blues anyway you know sometimes the line between blues and country where where is that line right so much of it always crossed over you know going back in the 1920s where a lot of country music could have very easily been categorized as blues and a lot of country old country music actually had blues in the title, you know, there, there's a really old country song called Texas Blues that a lot of different people remade over and over again, right? So even that name shows the influence of, of Black music in country, but the segregation of country music coming out of Nashville has, uh, you know, been a huge part of the genre's history, you know, where, like we said, maybe one a generation, one person a generation, breaks through in Nashville. And so I think that what's key to this moment we're in right now, where you've got people like Lil Nas X and everything, is that they are breaking free of the constraints of the Nashville-based country industry. It's people who are, in some cases, working outside of that in a more independent kind of a way. And it's why there was initially some hesitance to have Lil Nas X actually be part of the country music establishment. Uh, you know, can we play him on country radio? And then, okay, some DJs are playing him, but then does he get nominated for country music awards? That's another question, right? So it's like, there have always been Black people who played country music, always been there. But has that door been open in terms of Nashville? So I think it's interesting to see like a lot of the modern people are coming at country not through the Nashville establishment, but doing it in a more independent way. And then Nashville eventually ends up having to acknowledge, you know. Uh, so I think even though Black musicians uh, haven't always been welcome in country music, especially coming out of the center of country in Nashville, Black people have continued to engage with country. You know, plenty of us still listened to it. Plenty of us still performed it. Uh, on a personal note, when I was in grad school, I performed in a country band. Uh, we started off as a Dixie Chicks cover band. It was a three Black women from the South. My friend Corey from North Carolina, uh, Holly was from Arkansas, and then me coming from Texas, we were having a conversation about how country music was always really important to us. And we did, you know, growing up in the South, you hear a lot of country around, you know, it's almost impossible to live in the South and not ever hear any country music, you know. Uh, so we started off as a Black Dixie Chicks cover band. So we called ourselves Blixie. And then we branched from there to writing our original songs and everything. And we were steeped in country with some blues as well in there. Our R&B influence was always part of it as well. But we were also very rooted in country. And part of what we were trying to do 
is show that a big piece of country music history is black. You know, even though the the Nashville industry shut a lot of us out over the years that that there's a space for country music in black culture and you can hear that influence all over and vice versa that a lot of other styles have influenced country over the years. So then with people like, uh, you know, Maren Morris, who's from the, the DFW area, Maren Morris does country, but there's also, she has a lot of R&B sensibilities as well, you know, on her last album, Girl, she has a song called RSVP that when I heard that, I was like, this is an R&B song, right? But like, why wouldn't someone from the DFW, you know, home of Erica Badu, why wouldn't she also be R&B and soul influenced, you know? So anyway, that, I think that the way that we, we often think of country music as kind of its own thing and closed off uh, because of that history of segregation in country. But for so long, country bridged with other forms of music. There's been so much Black influence on country that I, I'm glad. I'm glad to see that things are diversifying now. Right, because when I first heard When You Break Up in a Small Town by Sam Hunt, I thought this cut sounded like it could have been on Confessions because with the way that it sounded, I was like, <laughs> okay, this, this guy is jamming. But of course, being from North Carolina, I didn't grow up listening to country per se, but you knew enough to know who were Randy Travis, Ronnie Millsap, Garth Brooks, Faith Hill, Tr Trisha Yearwood, Martina McBride was, and same thing with NASCAR, and how, you know, a yeah. lot of the guards of the old South is slowly but surely being erased. And for me, being from North Carolina, I'm happy to see that, that now I can finally go to a NASCAR race and feel welcome. Uh, that, that's interesting. My husband talks about that growing up in Georgia, watching NASCAR on TV, but knowing that he wasn't going to be welcome, seeing it, you know, go actually going to it. Would those crowds really accept him showing up? It's a whole other thing. So yeah, yeah. Um, you know uh, the song uh, by what's it, Adia Victoria, South Gotta Change. Uh, you know, I, I think that that song for me really like encapsulated a lot of it. Right, we've we've come far, but there's still some places where change needs to happen, whether it's cultural with music, with NASCAR, political, obviously, with what's going on in Georgia mm -hmm. right now, some of that's going on in Texas at the very same time. There are these areas that we're going to, we got to keep working on. Right. And can we talk about conscious rap and how, you know, with Grandmaster Flash, Furious 5, The Message, Public Enemy, Fight the Power, NWA, F the Police, and how that's always been the message of those who don't have the voice of the majority, but when we come together as a collective, we use that megaphone and say, you're gonna hear us today, whether you like it or not. And sadly, the same stuff that even further back, the last poets, Jill Scott Heron, uh, Roz Baraka was telling us, is still going on four plus decades later. Yeah, you know, I think that it's what you ended with there, that those messages still going on. I think that, that that's really crazy when we look at the things that people, the social political issues that people were talking about in the 60s and 70s, we're still saying some of those very same things 
today, you know, and, and I think that's why there's always been this power of protest that's in black music in, in the Americas, period, not just the United States, but also when you look at the music of black populations in places like Brazil and Colombia, you know, that element of protest is something that people of African descent have used in our music, uh, you know, across the Americas, across time. And so with, you know, conscious hip hop draws on the, this very deep well of, of African-American protest. And so, you know, even when I talk about black music and protest in my classes, one of the things we talk about are the spirituals that our ancestors sang and how there are all these elements of protest in it. You know, many of us, when we were young, learned about the spirituals that told people how to escape, right? Uh, Wade uh, in the water could be used as, you know, a route to escape and those sort of things. But even beyond that, I think spirituals had that element of saying, I am here and my voice matters and I am equal, right? Uh, spirituals that say things like, I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's children got shoes. There's a kind of protest that's in that as well. If you think about enslaved people probably didn't have shoes, but that's a message of equality saying, I'm here and my voice matters that you see carried through. You see the cultural protest in jazz, the cultural protest, obviously in the soul era as well. And then the spoken word kind of tradition that you were mentioning as well with people like the Watts prophets and the last poets and everything that how I think that every form of modern black music has that element of it, of, of social, political, economic consciousness. And if we think of those roots of early hip hop in the South Bronx, and you think about the climate that it came out of, you know, that this was an expression for disfranchised black and brown youth to be able to talk about the issues that matter to them. And I think that that element stays as, as hip hop gets expressed in different communities, that it's people talking about the issues that are important to them and modern people drawing on that very old tradition of using the music to make, to, to make these messages. It's that hip hop's version of it has become so global you know, that I think about how many places I know the issues facing certain communities through its hip hop, you know, and I think that's, that's very important that, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was young and I heard KRS-One say, sound of the police, right? It, it told, and then at the same time in Houston, we've got the ghetto boys talking about cricket officer, right? And then out in LA, you've got NWA, of course, with F the police that these are voices from different parts of the country, but it's young people who are all talking about the same thing. Oh, okay, cricket officer, we've got these issues with police brutality in Houston, but KRS-One is talking about it in the Bronx and NWA is talking about it out in LA, that it, you put these voices together and it becomes a chorus of people talking about the issues that, you know, especially young black and brown communities are, are facing, you know, and, um, you know, some people talk about conscious rap, like it's its own genre, right? Like it's something that's like apart from the rest, but I think you can see those messages 
in pretty much every kind of of hip hop that's out there, you know? Right. And of conscious, I was thinking about Tupac, how Tupac, he was a voice of the people, but also had his ears to the streets. And it was a tragedy that we were not able to witness his full growth with him being killed so young at uh, 25. And then sadly, nine months later, Christopher Wallace and Tories B.I.G. passed away and we were robbed of seeing both of their legacies being able to flourish. Yeah, I really feel that now, especially that I'm in my 40s, you know, and I, I was younger than Tupac and Biggie at the time when, when they were murdered. I was younger than they were. And now that I'm in my 40s, I especially feel the tragedy that they didn't get to be middle-aged men either, you know? And um, I, I've been thinking about that a lot recently too, with even some of our political icons that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X didn't get to live to see 40 either. You know, that sometimes our brightest voices get stamped out at, at young ages and that that's also a, a tragedy that we don't get to see some of these power, some of the power of some of these uh, young black leaders, whether it's in the political realm, religion, uh, popular culture, that they get stamped out so young that of course they make an, an impact before they go, but we're robbed of what they could have done. Yeah, definitely. And um, we recently just lost DMX at the age of 50 and how his impact was felt throughout the world because he's the only artist I believe to have all has his first five albums go number one. That's a feat that I think we'll never mm -hmm. see matched and how he was a total different movement than what was going on at the time with Diddy and Bad Boy and how he was the streets, but he also was deeply connected with God at the same time and mm. he was just man dmx was just a force yeah yeah he was that's a, a terrible loss mm, def definitely a loss and can we talk about the impact of dr dre snoop everything that was coming out of the west coast and how we could trace dr dre if it wasn't for dre there wouldn't be no snoop there wouldn't be no eminem there wouldn't be no 50 Cent, there wouldn't be no Game, and there wouldn't be no Kendrick Lamar. All have ties to Dr. Dre. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, what you just highlighted shows how influential a few people can be in terms of creating a scene, you know? And I, I think that's what's really important in terms of getting local sounds out there is that it can't just be you. You know, if you're somebody like Dr. Dre, who was, you know, of course, influential with NWA, and then of course has his own success with, with his solo albums like The Chronic, that he was always looking to find ways to find new voices, right? So then of course we're introduced to Snoop by him, you know, that I think that like Teddy Riley, right, that they they were always looking for that other new young talent. So it's why people like them end up becoming the center of scenes because they're trying to use their influence to mentor, you know? And I think that that's a, a really interesting part of hip hop that gets under, 
I think that story is underrated, uh, undertold that there are a lot, there's a lot of hip hop mentorship. You know, I think that the, the stereotyping of hip hop often wants to look at the, the conflict, you know, and the, of course there have been times when conflict in hip hop has been awful, devastating, right? East coast, West coast and the loss of life, you know, that, that came out of that rivalry. But at the same time within hip hop history, there is, there is the story of mentorship that has been there for a long time. You got to look at the people who always had their ear to the street, who were always looking for the new innovators and who helped them get a voice, right? So then through things like Aftermath, you really especially see Dr. Dre's influence in, you know, helping to create a sound and a scene around that in Los Angeles. And I, I really think that that's key to, to getting your local sound out there and making people um, acknowledge and appreciate uh, what is there. So it takes that kind of a mind, you know, to, to think about mentorship and, you know, and not everybody thinks about that uh, in, this, in the same way. And I think that that's an underappreciated aspect of hip hop history are the people who mentor others, who put other people on, who produce records for them. And, and that happens, you know, I think when people can get a foothold in the industry as not just the talent, the voice you hear on there, but who can get a foothold in the behind the scenes, mm. you know, aspect of it. Like earlier when I was saying how I appreciate that you talk to producers, choreographers, right? The people who help uh, put together the package that we see. You know, that, that a lot of that involves that mentorship of, of discover, being able to discover new talent, but then to also be able to gain a foothold in the industry mm. where you can have the, the pipeline, you know, mm. to actually get those sounds out there. Mm. And so, you know, with Dr. Dre, you see him able to do that with Aftermath and then Shady Aftermath is a spinoff of that. Yeah. Mm, uh, the impact of the funk groups of the 60s and 70s out of Dayton, Ohio with Slave, Lakeside, Ohio Players, and then out of Cincinnati, the Isley Brothers. I just recently interviewed Chris Jasper, formerly of the Isley Brothers and oh, Isley Jasper Isley. Catch that. And then also Sid Nathan and King Records and how they were influ influential in launching James Brown's career. You know, it's funny you bring up Ohio. That is, I grew up with that Ohio funk out of Dayton and everything. And my dad especially loved Ohio funk. But the thing is, I'm not even sure if he recognized that a lot of the music he liked came from that same scene. You know, so a lot of the people that I was exposed to when I was young, uh, were a lot of funk acts that came out of Ohio, like especially my dad loved Lakeside and uh, some of his favorite of all time, Zap. You know, and in fact, uh, my dad said that my my first favorite song when I was little was Do I Diddy <laughs> by Zap. I don't exactly remember that, but I know that that song always, my entire life, every time I hear it, I have all the feels, right? It, it still takes me to a place. And it's because I grew up with him playing funk music 
that came out of Ohio, but I don't think he realized that a lot of these people came from the same state. He, one of his best friends was a man named Jonathan who had moved to Houston from Ohio. And I think he brought some of that influence with him and was always playing those records. And then my dad was real into it and then he exposed me to it. And not until I was much older did I realize, wait a minute, this is a seed, right? This is like a, an Ohio thing that's going on. That's influenced me so much over the years. So yeah, now that's a that's a story <laughs> right there about all this funky music, right? That that comes out of these acts from this state. Right. And then tying it back to what we were talking about with Dr. Dre, how a lot of those G-Funk era sounds, they sample a lot of those snap yeah. records, parliament records, and were heavily influenced by that sound enough to be able to repurpose it and introduce it to a new generation. And this made me feel old. Next year, the chronic will be 30 years old. Wow. Oh, why'd you have to do that to me? <laughs> no, you may. I, I feel bad because I was about six going on seven when the chronic came out. So. You know, wow. I, I feel I feel I feel bad, but um, about <laughs> the impact of L.A. and Babyface, how they, along with we mentioned earlier, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, and Teddy Riley, mm -hmm. had a stranglehold on pretty much pop R&B radio, and how they were easily able to straddle the fence. Yeah, you know, if you look at the R&B and top 40 charts in the middle of the 1990s. LaFace, I mean, my goodness, they were all over the place. And then of course they they signed the deal with, uh, what is it, Arista? Mm -hmm. uh, and then that becomes a way that they're putting all this music out there. The Ellie and Babyface were everywhere in the early to mid 90s. And they help, I think for, there's a moment there in around 95, especially, where there's really not a separation between top 40 and what's on the R&B charts because of so many of those people that came out of that LaFace family. They were they R&B were hits and pop hits at the very same time. So the LA and Babyface found, they, they found like the sweet spot for, for R&B music that connected so broadly with so many different artists that I think they make by 1995 one of the sounds in popular music is coming out of that la and baby face uh production you know so again those those people who are important to the creation of a scene and through things like mentorship and everything yeah really can't be can't be overstated no and if it wasn't full of face we wouldn't have outcasts so can we talk about the outpack of outcast dungeon family goody mob T.I., that whole trap movement out of Atlanta. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I married somebody from the Atlanta area. My husband's from Decatur, Georgia, went to Morehouse. And so I have also been, even though I grew up listening to all of that music, going back out to Atlanta and having Georgia become part of my life, I especially now can connect certain things and see how local all of that is, that they're always talking about Atlanta things, Atlanta places, you know, um, 
street corners that are important to them. You know, so I think that like exp- the the explosion of Atlanta, you know, nowadays Atlanta is one of the major entertainment cities that, you know, when you look back at all of these people that it was LaFace that helped kind of harness all of this musical energy that was going on in Atlanta uh, around young black youth in the city. They, they had an ear to what was going on and to what some of the major sounds were that were coming out there, you know? And uh, as soon as classes are over and I finish grading papers, first thing I'm doing is grabbing my copy of Chronicling Stankonia, a new book that's just come out that's about uh, uses outcasts as a way of talking about Southern hip hop, uh, you know, and uh, helps historicize Southern hip hop. And of course, Atlanta and everything is such a, a big part of that. So I'm really looking forward to learning more through that. But, you know, outcast was really important. Like I talked about the ghetto boys earlier with Houston, even though I don't think I'd ever even been to Atlanta when I first heard outcast when they first came out with uh, Southern Playalistic, I had never even been to the city of Atlanta, but I felt like I knew it from listening to Outkast albums that, you know, they they really, uh, because hip hop is often such a local expression, right? Where you talk about where you're from and what matters to you. It helped me learn more about this other part of the South that I hadn't been to before. And then when I went and I started going regularly uh, when I met my husband, then I started seeing exactly how Atlanta outcast is like, oh, wow. He would say that's the bus stop that they talk about in this song right here. Or that's the mall big boy mentions in this song that it's like, wow, they really were talking about the spaces of black Atlanta, you know, that I can, I can see that now. Yeah, some people are still reminiscing about Freak Nick 94, Freak Nick 95, <laughs> still having their so so deaf bass. Also, I was in elementary middle school, but hearing about Freak Nick, I was like, man, sounds exciting. But looking at it through the lens, through an adult now, how those environments were particularly unsafe, you know, for women. And it's great to see how now people are calling out saying, this is not right. We're not going to take this. And that's what I applaud about this young generation where we're not gonna be labeled. We're not gonna fit in the box. We're gonna hold people accountable. And are you seeing now with college students how it's not like how it was in higher learning, how everybody was in their own cliques and everybody's just meshing and intermingling amongst each other or do you still see kind of that clickiness? I do think that there's some clickiness, but I think that, In my context where I work now, University of Arizona is an HSI or Hispanic serving institution. And so that means that, you know, a a certain percentage of students identify as Hispanic or Latinx. And so because of that, I think even though I'm at a big state school, I don't have to, I don't see some of the same things that I saw at PWIs because we have a a different ethnic and racial makeup out here at Arizona. I would say a lot of it still deals with class though. One of the things I see the clickishness is around class issues and not always uh, race. Of course, race and class do influence each other 
So there is some of that, but I think that I feel like there are some students who come from working class communities who still don't feel like they're part of the mainstream college experience because that can be expensive. So like at U of A, U of A has a kind of thriving Greek life, a lot of sororities and fraternities, but it can be expensive to pledge. You know, you gotta, you gotta pay membership dues or fees. I'm not sure what they call them, but you know, it can be expensive to be part of that world. And so I think that that sort of thing, you know, there, there still can be, you know, an insider outsider kind of a thing, even at a school like mine, that's an HSI, there can still be ways that certain students don't feel like they're part of the mainstream campus life. Yeah, because we were talking about earlier about having that slice of HBCU life at PWIs, how for my school, here's how you knew all the black folks on campus. A, when it was time for a probate for all the black Greeks to reveal their new members, when it was basketball season, and when it was homecoming at the HBCU up the road, because my school didn't have a football team. So a lot of students would go to either A&T's or Winston-Salem State's homecoming to take part in the festivities. I'm put a disclaimer. I'm not a member of any BJLO. I know a lot of people who are and do not get caught with any of their colors, letters, and hat, jacket, necklace, any form of paraphernalia, because you will get checked. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a big, I also, I never, I was part of a sorority, you know, in terms of that, that aspect of college social life. Part of it was economic for me too, that it was like, Oof, this is a little pricey to be part of. So that, that was one aspect of it. But at the same time, I think that that, like you said, that did make Black life kind of more visible on campus to where at homecoming, for example, or right before Texas played Oklahoma, you know, Texas, Oklahoma football rivalry is always a big deal. People go to Dallas to watch the big game. And so there would usually be a step show or at least a step performance during the lead up to the Texas OU game. So that would, yeah, give a little more exposure to some of the black organizations on campus. And so, you know, I found that like for some people who were not black, Greek life and sports were kind of the only things they knew about other black students on campus. So yeah, yeah, that, that at a PWI, sometimes that's one of the few things uh, that can make black life visible. Uh, here on our campus, we also have a Martin Luther King Resources Center that's also trying to do different kinds of things that make Black student life just a little bit more visible and a more active part of campus life. But it's a it's always a struggle, I think, for a lot, unless you happen to go to a non-HBCU that happens to be very diverse. Like again, University of Houston, it can be really hard to find those Black spaces or expressions of Black culture. Right. And I always felt that race is kind of like a slippery slope because you want to kind of say, hey, this is our thing, but at the same time, not have it feel where it's almost like a private golf club where I know you want to be down, but you can't be down because this is FUBU for us by us. Yeah. And, you know, I think that at a, at a PWI, trying to find Black space is so, so important. And, you know, I ran into that all the time, especially at Wisconsin, 
where when I was in Afro-American studies, there was a black professor there in the department who funded a kind of black studies potluck, a black student potluck, where once a month we would gather at each other's apartments and bring food. Sometimes we would play spades. Sometimes people brought dominoes. I don't you know, know how to play spades. Uh, I'm gonna throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rusty. It's been it's been years for me now. I'm a little rusty, but you know, there would be these gatherings at least once a month where we could feel like we're in black space. Because in Madison, Wisconsin, there really weren't a, there weren't a lot of places for that. So there was a, a black professor in my department who actually gave us money so that we could do this once a month. But the issue is there were some white students who were also in the program and some of them felt ostracized by it. You know, like, well, why aren't we invited? Why? And I think that it's, um, I think that it's important, I think, for some people who may be better represented on college campuses to understand what it feels like to be minoritized, right? Mm -hmm. To be in a space where you just don't get to see other people like you. Uh, that it is important, I think, just for our own self-care, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to have some space. You know, so like you were saying, you know, you don't want to be exclusive. You don't want to exclude anyone. But at the same time, there's that tension because we do need our space where we can feel like we can be ourselves and not have to be, you know, the token person in your class. You don't want that yes. reproduced in your social life. You know, in your social life, you want to feel like your full self, you know? Right. And that's why the Black Barbershop and Black Beauty Salon is so important. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, for me in Madison, I kind of got that. I found a Jamaican hair braiding shop and uh, it was run by a woman from the grill named Paulette. And, you know, going to get my corn, my hair cornrowed at Paulette's, it just felt like I was stepping into something, even though I'm not of Jamaican descent at all. It was still like a, a, a cultural blackness a space I could step into. I'd go in there and, you know, they're eating rice and peas. They got reggae music playing, you know, and it's it just like, yes, I feel like I can breathe here, even though, you know, I'm not Jamaican, it was still a black space, you know? And so, yeah, and of course I'm getting my hair corn <laughs> and everything and having to then go back to school and explain to everybody what my hairstyle was called and why it looks like that, you know? So like that was my day to day, but being able to, you know, go to Paulette's or go to these black student potlucks uh, or even the band I told you about, Blixie, if I hadn't had those, grad school would have been much, much harder. Right, because for me, moving from North Carolina to New Mexico, it was a big culture shock for me going where it's predominantly African-American to corner of the state where it's predominantly Native American. I am in the Northwest part of the state where the Navajo tribe is dominant. And it was my first interactions in being around folks of Native descent and Hispanic because there's a few sprinkled in North Carolina, but not as much as it is here in New Mexico. And the first thing, once I moved, I was like, okay, what church am I going to join? And then mm -hmm. where I'm going to get my hair cut? Those were the first two things I was caring about because we, I'm telling you folks, 
if you don't know how important a haircut is to a black man, it is very <laughs> important, especially when you had a long, hard day, when the barber says how you want your haircut, especially if it's the barber that you know, you just tell them the usual and they'll know how you like your haircut. But here's a little secret. Have two barbers on rotation in case your main barber's out. Ah, smart. <laughs> uh, that's wise. <laughs> yeah, very wise. Have a main barber and a backup barber when your main is out and know your guards because as long as I tell them, man, I want a one here. I want it square in the back. I want tapered on the sides. Make sure the hairline crisp. If you got a clean, crisp haircut and a fresh wash car, you're ready to conquer the world. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. You know, uh, you know, be, both of us being in the Southwest, I think that uh, like you, I growing up was not exposed to a lot of Native American culture and communities. And I think that the lessons that I was getting from school and what we learned about indigenous histories always made it seem like they were of the past, mm -hmm. but not like they were part of modern U.S. society and part of our future. It, they always are put like, you know, you get that first history lesson that was, okay, here's the Native American past, and then we'd move on. And then maybe talk about them again to talk about the Trail of Tears, maybe to mention the reservations, maybe if we got there, you know, and then I moved, the, the farther west I went, the more I started to see how many modern indigenous communities there are, you know, in the United States and how dynamic those communities still are. So I think, you know, even though there, there's not a huge population of, of African-Americans where I am currently in Tucson, not a very large population, I think I've learned so much from uh, the diverse indigenous communities that are out here around Tucson. So I feel like I've learned so much more about the history and culture of the United States moving out here. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, going out to the reservations and how, you know, the projects in any town USA would make the reservations look like totally two different things where the projects would look like a five-star hotel while with reservations you have people going x amount of miles out just to get fresh water everybody all under one roof having to put tires on the roof so that way the roof doesn't blow and it just mm -hmm. opened my eyes to where there's not enough representation and we need to be a voice for those who don't have a lot of representation at the table. And that's why it's good to see with, you know, the Washington football team and the Cleveland baseball team and, you know, the different places and schools where the use of native names is being looked at and saying, hey, this is wrong. We're not going to use it for our fodder because they have, you know, Rep they have representation, but we need to speak for them as well. Then also with everything that's going on with our Asian American brothers and sisters right now. Right. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, we have to understand that in some way, most of our struggles are linked somehow, you know, I, you know, I think about just here recently, the tragedy 
of the 13-year-old boy killed by police officers in Chicago, mm-hmm. right? That we we have to see that like a lot of the things that we know affect our community. If we look out, there are other groups that might have similar struggles, sometimes the same struggles and, you know, showing solidarity around that. And I think that, uh, yeah, living in the, in the Southwest, especially uh, has brought up so many of the, the intersections with black and indigenous, black and indigenous life. And I know for us having a lot of reservations here in Arizona, part of the last elections in 2020, you know, Arizona elections really tended to swing blue in 2020 last year. And part of that had to do with political organizing of the Mexican-American vote in places like Phoenix, but also Native American as well, who, you know, mobilized politically. And so, yeah, it it takes those broad coalitions sometimes too, you know. Mm -hmm, I agree. And I'm going to get you out of here on this. Talk about current projects and also soul stories, which can be heard on KXCI. Yeah, Soul Stories is about a year and a half old now, and it's on community radio here, uh, 91.3 KXCI in Southern Arizona, based out of Tucson. And uh, Soul Stories kind of came about because I, I guessed, I had some guest appearances on some other people's shows there. And I do have somewhat of a background in radio in that I majored in radio, TV, film, as you mentioned in the introduction. And I co-hosted a show when I was in grad school up in Madison. And so once I graduated, though, and became a professor, radio kind of started to fall out of my day-to-day life. You know, I, I got a new job, you know, moved to a new place. And so, you know, life happens. And so that aspect of what I used to do kind of fell away. So I really loved sometimes going on KXCI as a guest. And usually I would just go on and talk about music history, you know, chop it up the way we've been doing here. And so then when they had a a few DJs stopped doing their show, they called me in and said, hey, do you have an idea for something you want to pitch? And so uh, right now I happen to be at a point in my writing career where I've been really doing a lot of projects that are around the history of R&B music. Kind of everything I'm doing right now in some sort of a way comes back to R&B history. Uh, I taught a class called Soul Music and the Civil Rights Movement. The last chapter of my book on Houston was about soul music. And so from there, it just kind of bridged. And I started working on this project on New Edition. And at the same time, I've been working on this book on the history of gender and sexuality in rhythm and blues history. You know, I feel like there's there's a lot of great books out there on R&B, R&B and soul. And I, I just kind of felt like one of the issues that could be looked at a little bit more is this history of gender and sexuality in the history of R&B. And so I think that right now, Soul Stories looks at the roots and branches of rhythm and blues. So sometimes I do shows that talk about the bridge between soul music and rock music, right? I've talked about soul meets country, right? So I kind of have a theme every week and it kind of shows the evolution of rhythm and blues. And then in my writing, that's something that I'm also doing at the same time. So I feel like these things kind of connect 
so that right now I've, I've been doing a lot of talking, thinking, and research on the history of rhythm and blues. And it's really helped me see that this is one of the most important forms of music that's come out of the United States and one of the most successful, right? Rhythm and blues has continued to shift from its early days. It of course is the backbone of rock and roll. Early rock and roll was rhythm and blues, you know? There really wasn't a distinction between the two. Soul music as an offshoot, disco comes out of rhythm and blues. And then of course we've been talking about hip hop soul too and the way those things meet up. So it, it just seems to me that the history of rhythm and blues is very rich and something that I think that we can learn more about popular culture in the United States by looking at all the different forms rhythm and blues has taken. So I feel like in my two writing projects right now, the, the book on gender and sexuality and R&B, the new edition book and soul stories for me have taught me so much about R&B. And so, yeah, that's kind of kind of where I am right now as an historian and what my projects are. All right, we're definitely looking forward to those when they drop. And do you have any shout outs you want to give before we wrap this interview? Plug your social media and where folks can find anything they want to know about you, how to get a hold of you and things of that nature. Yeah, definitely. So I'm on social media. My Twitter is my first and last name, Tawana Steptoe. Tawana spelled T-Y-I-N-A. You can also find my website. It's at TawanaSteptoe.com where I uh, post new things that I've been working on. There's a link to my Soul Stories show as well. Uh, if you go to kxci.org, you can listen to Soul Stories. You can stream it online from anywhere in the world. Uh, so there's a two-week archive of all of our KXCI shows. So you can hear Soul Stories from the last 14 days by going to kxci.org. And you can find that link on my website. All right, definitely check them out there. And you can catch this interview on audio or video form wherever you stream, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, tune in. And on YouTube, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover and beyond the album cover.wordpress.com. Ladies and gentlemen, associate professor at the University of Arizona at Tucson, Bear Down, Go Wildcats. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Tawana Steptoe, thank you for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Not a problem.